turn over in our Bibles or back of the bulletin to Job chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll say we're going to look at chapter 4 and 5 today, which is a much larger chunk than I would typically take. But the way I've been thinking about this series is is you can you can fly over the Appalachian Mountains, you can hike the Appalachian Trail, or you can drive through. And that that third way is the way I'm thinking about this series is more of a drive through with pit stops along the way because I mean my my inclination would be to, to pause and walk into the forest and study the the mushrooms on the trees. That's how I'm wired. But I, I'd like to move through this a little quicker. But that said, um, I think it's important for us, especially in Job, when it's it's difficult to figure out what these guys are saying to understand the whole of their speech um, and not to break it up too much. So that's my thought behind it. But as we go through, if there's a point where you say through this whole series, where you say, I'd like to know more, dig deeper, let, let me know. Um, as we can certainly take pit stops along the way. So with that said, also, I think today, because it is two chapters, I'm going to read it as we go along through the text. Um, contrary to our, our typical uh, method this morning. So uh, before we get into Job 4 and 5, let's pray. Our Father, you are the all-wise God, and we come to your word this morning on bended knee seeking your wisdom and your truth, uh, for there really is no other. Destroy within us, we pray, the vanity of our own self-made wisdom, And may we be directed instead to Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, and in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do these things we ask and plead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, So thus far in the book of Job, Job has been afflicted severely with the loss of his family, the loss of his health, his wealth, and his possessions. And his afflictions are unknown to him or his friends, as we've seen, actually because of his righteousness, which is a bit counterintuitive to us. Um, And Satan has been given permission by God to take everything from Job except for his life. And Job has indeed been brought to the very edge of death. And in chapter 3, we heard really what was the, the guttural cries of a heart turned inside out. Um, He did not curse God, as Satan said he would, to his face, but he did curse the day he was born. And we saw that even after all he had lost, he continued to be afflicted with the horrifying idea that God may have forsaken him. This appears an awful lot like covenant cursing, and, and where is God? And that's the idea that frightens him the most. But here's a bit of the catch is, His afflictions aren't over yet. These are really the only beginning of his afflictions, and and the devil will afflict him for now numerous chapters, actually, with the advice of his friends. They will be really, in many ways, the voice of the Satan, either whispering or shouting in his face, That he's enduring this affliction because of some sin or failure that he he committed. 
And the difficulty with this is these friends will mostly speak lies with truths, with truisms, and in the name of godly wisdom. And this is how Satan works often, at least at first, as an angel of light. Every Christian heretic who ever lived could proof text and smile his way out of an accusation of heresy. So this Eliphaz is the first speaker. The Temanite, which is Timon, is, is likely a city in Edom where Job probably lives. And he's the first to speak. And very likely he's the oldest, the most senior, the most wise. And he's probably been steeped in wisdom traditions for a long time. And as such, his speech, and especially his first one, is the most gentle, the most subtle. As it goes on, they get more and more forceful. This is the most friendly of the speeches. And as we'll see, while he speaks some true things, even many things worth listening to, if properly understood, his advice falls short of true divine wisdom and actually ends up being a satanic voice of accusation against Job. So we'll see here how, how Eliphaz responds to Job's outcry in chapter 3, beginning here in verse 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Job's cry makes Eliphaz uncomfortable. I have to say something. And will you be impatient with me if I speak? This is a subtle accusation, really. If I offer some words of wisdom and comfort to you, will you turn on me like you have turned on God? And I do think he's well-intentioned here. He wants to encourage Job. But there's this subtle rebuke of Job of, of impatience and inconsistency. If we look at verse 3, Behold, you have instructed many. And you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. By now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. All these years, Job, you have been Mr. Wisdom. Everybody comes to you. The weak, the sufferers, they come to you to be built up, to be lifted up and strengthened. But now, Job, you are not Walking the talk. Where's your strength? Where, where is your old fortitude? So Job is not being consistent in Eliphaz's mind. And now the, the former sort of implicit accusation that Job is impatient is more direct. You are impatient. You are dismayed now that this affliction has come upon you. And I just get the sense that he's saying, I know, Job, deep down inside, you're still the same guy. Just dig a little deeper. In verse 6, it's not, is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. This is in many ways just a biblical description of wisdom. The fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear, that, that submission to God, Lived out is what he calls integrity. That's wisdom. 
It's the essence of wisdom. In biblical wisdom literature, the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. So people may be very intelligent. They may live very moral, upright lives. They may be self-disciplined. But if it's not born out of the fear of the Lord, of submission to God, then it's not biblical wisdom. Likewise, they may give lip service to the Lord, but if they don't walk that out, then that's not true wisdom either. And this seems to be Eliphaz's concern, that if you were confident, Job, that, that as, a, as a fountain of wisdom to offer life-giving hope to other people, if you could apply that to yourself for advice and comfort, why, why are they not sufficient for your own trouble if they were for everybody else? So he is, in fact, bothered by Job's suffering. And one wonders if he's even afraid because... These events are not aligning with his tidy system of wisdom and doctrine. We get a sense of his system, and this is a way that commentators refer to the way these men think is the system. What is his system? In verse 7, remember who, was, who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. In essence, the system is people get what's coming to them. You reap what you sow, what goes around comes around. Um, one friend of mine, rightly, I think, calls this Christian karma. It really is an Eastern way of thinking. And again, uh, all of it is based on truth, true, true isms, true statements. Proverbs 26, 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. This is the biblical idea. Verse 7 has covenantal overtones to perish or to be cut off, is to be separated from God, separated from his people. So we might want to paraphrase that, that whoever has been divinely cursed that didn't deserve it. God is just, he says. His breath consumes the wicked. He is a consuming fire, Job. And the lion here, he speaks of the lion. He uses five Hebrew words for lion. Um, and the lion is the symbol of strength, but also in Scripture a symbol of wickedness and oppression. And that lion, he says, even God reduces to nothing. Its teeth are broken and it can be reduced to, to starvation. Again, more good Bible verses on this. Psalms 57, 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And Psalm 58, 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. 
So the truisms are not untrue. They're biblical. But we can begin to see some of the problem with what has been called uh, retribution theology that these men have, that Job's friends have. That they, they take general principles and turn them into universal principles. Instead of saying that's, that's true on the whole, they say that's always true. But we only have to come up with one counterexample and uh, Eliphaz's claim is proven false. So what about the murder of righteous Abel? All of a sudden, what, what Eliphaz said is no longer true. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished. And of course, above all, this kind of theology is completely undercut by the very heart of the gospel. Who, who that was innocent ever perished? Or, who, or where were the upright ever cut off? And all of the Sunday school children said, Jesus. And we with him, no less, we, as Peter says, suffer for righteousness sake. And then, of course, the elephant in the room that Eliphaz has no idea, but Job himself testified by God to be righteous. Now, of course, God's scales are balanced. Justice will be served. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But Eliphaz makes an observable, uh, makes this into a universal principle, an observable universal principle. As I have seen those who plow iniquity, so trouble and so trouble reap the same. So it's, it's a simple logical error. I've noticed that sin tends to bring suffering. Job is suffering. Therefore, Job must have sin. He goes on to sort of bolster his assumption with this really odd vision um, in verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was, was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. He's receiving some kind of supernatural visitation in the night. The source of this revelation isn't exactly clear, but it's clear that, that it's supernatural and it's terrifying. But for all the kind of uh, spooky fanfare here, the, the rhetorical question that is asked, the one Eliphaz wants to impress on Job to apply to Job's situation, is really kind of a letdown. It's not very revolutionary. In verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In one sense, that's the most important question can, we can ask. Can we be pure before our maker? Can we be right before God? But in this context, there would be unanimous agreement, especially from Job. Of course, 
No one can stand on their two feet before God. And the question at hand here is not whether men, mere men, can obtain moral perfection. Job himself was so diligent to offer sacrifices just in case someone cursed God quietly in their hearts. He understands. He knows men are sinful. He knows that he is sinful. The question is, did Job, who was in fellowship with God, earn for himself by what all accounts appears to be covenant cursing, a cutting off? So however obvious the answer is, the, 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 the rhetorical question here is supported by more truisms. In verse 18, even in his servants, uh, he, God, puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. I think he's talking about the fallen angels here, probably. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, which could be talking about our bodies as houses of clay, or it could be talking about the difference in habitation. We are here on earth, and, and angels, even those who fell, have a heavenly presence How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? So men are men are so weak, so lowly before God and compared to the heavenly creatures that we can be crushed in a moment's time. Even like Job was, he woke up rich and, and doing well, and, the, and in one day, between sunup and sundown, he was crushed. He was demolished. A great man reduced to nothing, like a, a beautiful moth smeared into a powdery goo in an instant. He says men can live their whole lives, arrive at death, and never have been noticed by anyone in any significant way. Just a mist that vanishes, a tent cord, unstaked, dropped to the dust and rolled up to be moved along and packed away. We can go our whole lives to die without having truly known wisdom, not to the degree that the angels in heaven have. And I think the point of all this is just to, to offer a resounding no to the rhetorical question. No Mere man can truly be right or pure before God. That's, that's fairly well established anyway. So all of us Calvinists, as we say, yes and amen. At least in one sense. I, I really wrestled with this. this. This passage would be much easier without this vision. It would make a lot more sense to me. Um, but it's there, so we have to deal with it. And here's where I think Eliphaz misses the mark in applying this vision to Job's situation. That in short, he's questioning the justification of a man who has been justified by faith. On the basis of pure observation and assumption about Job. In other words, I, I think he may be mixing up Paul and James. And justification by faith and justification as vindication. 
He, he is applying a universal truism about fallen man's status before God to a situation in which a redeemed man is facing adversity that appears to be a curse from God. In other words, I think he's fundamentally saying, come on, Job, you know we're all sinners. You're no different from the rest of us. Just fess up, clean up, and move on. But his, his solution, as we go into chapter 5, to this problem is disconcerting because it all turns on, it seems like, what Job can do moving forward. He, he swings at the golf ball and he whiffs here. And actually he whiffs by, I think, just an eighth of an inch, but it, it might as well be a mile. Look at his solutions in chapter 5, 5 verse 1. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? It's kind of a fascinating question and idea. Which of the angels, I believe is what he's talking about, which of the angels can you turn? Those beings who are nearest to God. We may by extension apply that to the the idea of praying to the saints. Which of the saints will will you reach out to? To save you from this predicament. How are you going to stand before the Maker, Job? And rhetorically, I think he's saying, kind of, you're on your own, Job. Nobody's going to do this for you. You have to pull yourself up out of the pit yourself. So here, here's what I recommend. He says, kind of, I think you got to be quiet. He's uncomfortable with chapter three. You got to be quiet. You can't say all that stuff you were saying. You're, you're never going to get out of this curse acting the way you're, you're acting. He says in verse 2, Surely vexation kills the fool and jealously slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it out even of thorns. And the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Once again, all these these truisms are true. Insofar as they go, but applied to Job. Again, I think here is not a not so subtle accusation. That Job, you are acting the part of the fool. Lashing out in anger and jealousy like that, that that attitude, you're just going to continue in a downward spiral. Further and further cursed. As if he hadn't already reached the bottom. The fool is cursed, Job. The fool falls on hard times. His family falls on hard times. I have seen it, Eliphaz says. Um, There's this, this part here where he says... He cursed the dwell. He saw the fool taking root, being established, and suddenly I cursed his dwelling. Um, David Kleins points out that this cursing formula here used in verse three, I curse his dwelling, um, should not be viewed as the curse of the fool's downfall by his reaction to the sight of, or, or but the. So it's not that the curse of Eliphaz causes the downfall, but it's that. 
he observes the downfall. He says a curse was not necessarily a fate-producing word, but could be spoken a spoken recognition that a person was already under a curse. The curse formula, cursed are you, was intended by the one uttering it to keep himself vigorously aloof from the person and action of the cursed one. In other words, when, when Eliphaz sees someone acting like the fool, vexed and jealous and acting out against God, even though even if that person is becoming established, his household is growing, he's saying, I'm going to stay away, a ten foot pole from that person, because I know where he's going and I don't want to be swept away in that tidal wave. He says, you see, Job, afflictions don't just spring up magically from the ground. We as men bring afflictions on ourselves, just as the sparks fly upward. And so this is not bad advice. This is, in one sense, good advice. Proverbs 4, uh, 14 and 15, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. But again, we have to ask the question, is his faithfulness, his obedience, the path to right standing before God? And moreover, is Job actually playing the fool like Eliphaz thinks, or does he have legitimate questions about what he's experiencing? He's just so close. Like I said, I think an eighth inch from the golf ball in his initial question Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? He, he means to say there's no one you can turn to to do this for you, not realizing that there is one in heaven who would stand in the gap between him and God. And this is exactly the conclusion Job's, Job comes to himself. I need a mediator. I need a go-between. In Job 9.30, he confesses, If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, God, God is not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread from him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. So I, I, I need an arbiter. I need a go between between me and God here. And then in Job sixteen sixteen, and following, my face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold. My witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. To whom will you turn, Job? He's so close. But he whiffs. He continues here to offer advice and solutions to the problem. He says, I'll tell you what I would do. In verse 8, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. 
He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. I mean, this is, this is a beautiful passage of confession about God. This could be in the Psalms. This could, this is, this reminds me a lot of Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer about the, the destruction of the proud. Um, Paul himself quotes from this section in 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20. He says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So this, this section, this beautiful section, speaks to God's absolute sovereign justice. The God who will always do what is absolutely right. And so it's a good answer, at least, I think, to the fool who is truly wallowing in vexation and jealousy, as Eliphaz assumes, that instead of being swept away by impatience, seek God. Submit your cause to God. But I think we see the irony here in that the the very shrieks of agony in chapter 3 that Eliphaz is so uncomfortable with were not the complaints of a fool, but the cries of a righteous man seeking what he feels to be a loss of fellowship with God. That is his seeking of God. I just kind of feel the eyes of Job rolling back in his head. Great idea, Eliphaz. I'll try that next time. And he has now one final conjecture. It just feels a little bit like he's sort of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Um, and so one, one final idea here. Maybe, Job, you're being disciplined by God. He says in verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheep gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. We... The wise men have searched this out. We know it's right. So listen, Job, listen to this advice. It will be to your good. Reading between the lines a little bit, maybe you're despising God's discipline, Job. Maybe you accept 
what's happening here and turn your life around, accept God's will, and maybe you'll be restored. There's truth to that, of course, as well. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Just just listen to the comments that he makes here. At best, is that insensitive. Job sitting on a pile of ashes, having lost all of his children, you know that your offspring shall be many and as the grass of the field. No evil will touch you. Destruction and famine you shall laugh. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold. Remember Job had like however many thousands of camels, folds upon folds. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Are you kidding? It's too late. In this case, I don't think it's as subtle as he has been. He's directly suggesting that the, the loss that Job has experienced are, are the result of his hardness of heart and the discipline of the Lord. And again, that, that's a possible inference from the suffering person, right? That maybe they're enduring the discipline of the Lord. But it's not a necessary Inference, And in this case, uh, I, I like the way Eric Ortland puts it. He says, for all his good intentions, Eliphaz has read Job's situation exactly wrong. <laughs> Not only is he misreading the interpretation, but again, we see here his, his retribution theology seeping in again. It, it's really almost a word of faith or prosperity gospel kind of thing. Like, if A, then B. If you will accept the discipline of the Lord and submit your will to His, you will find material restoration. And of course, ironically, at the end of the book, spoiler alert, um, Job's material and earthly status is fully restored but it's not because he repented of some mysterious, grievous sin, but because this trial is brought to a close and because God is generous and merciful. So here, here's what I want us to be careful of, is what, again, the, the, the commentators call the system. A closed system of give and take that, that for all intents and purposes functions basically on a horizontal plane. That the philosophies of men are, are always if A, then B. If I have enough faith, if I do the right things, God will blame, rain blessing down on me. Which we can just respond with this one word, Job. Or, or more subtly, if I am faithful, God will be faithful to me. Is that true as a generalization? Yes. Is that true as a universal? No. But here is a more reliable universal. He is faithful when we are faithless. See, true wisdom accounts 
for observations and patterns in the world, but it also recognizes that God and his sovereignty breaks into this world. True, true wisdom accepts general principles without turning them into absolutized universals because it recognizes that, that God is in control of the universe and he does everything according to his glory. This is the, the great example of this is, of course, at the cross. And I think, I've wondered about why Paul quoted Eliphaz here about the wisdom of the world. I think he sensed the irony of it, what he was saying, because Eliphaz had the wisdom of the world. But the cross, Paul says in Corinthians, is the foolishness of the world and the wisdom of God. A foolishness that a perfectly innocent man endured shame and death so that Men who, who were impure and unrighteous could stand before God as right and pure. And this is something that God did that, so that he could be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. I'll just return to Eliphaz's question. Call now, is there anyone to answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? As for me, I'll suggest Christ to you, who stands to intercede at the Father's right hand and in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen.